Good morning or afternoon. I don't know the time yet, so I can't really be certain. Um, it is a joy and pleasure to be here. Um, thank you for welcoming me. And now hear from the Gospel of Luke, beginning in chapter 11. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, through Jesus our rock and our near kinsman. Amen. The Son of God goes forth to war, a kingly crown to gain. His blood-red banner streams afar. And now, what is the question asked? Who follows in his train? This hymn lays out the call to battle. You're either on the Lord's side, following the Son of God to war, or you aren't. Or, what about the following song lyrics? Now, there's spiritual warfare and flesh and blood breaking down. You either got faith or you got unbelief. And there ain't no neutral ground. There is no neutrality, and our gospel lesson this morning brings this point home. As J.C. Ryle said, let it be the settled determination of our minds that if we serve Christ with all our, uh, that we will serve Christ with all of our hearts if we serve him at all. And now our gospel lesson this morning has historically been read on the third Sunday in Lent. And it's fitting for that setting as it is a time of the year in which our celebration and remembrance of the life of Christ and his ministry of his complete devotion to the Father, of his labor, of his healings, of his miracles. It's a time between his baptism and his death and resurrection. It's a time of his battle and his fighting. And we're reminded that we are in a spiritual battle. We are at war. As the hymn I referenced earlier, we follow in the footsteps of Jesus in this battle. And we are in a battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And in our gospel lesson, we see the war waged particularly against the devil. And we see the manifestation of the kingdom of God in the ministry of Jesus. 
we read that Jesus cast out a mute demon, and the man now was able to speak. And the response of the crowd was to marvel. Though some asserted this miracle was done by the power of Beelzebul, and others, they just wanted more signs from heaven. Jesus' response is to first address the absurdity of the claim that he would be in league with Beelzebul, the prince of demons, by showing that there can be no unholy alliances with the enemy and no neutrality to his ministry. A house divided can't stand, and you're either with him or against him. And then Jesus uses a metaphor of demon possession and a house to show the futility of all the efforts to bring in this kingdom. There are no alternatives to his ministry. And he finishes this with a section on what makes one truly blessed. So let's look at verses 14 to 16. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. Some said that he did this by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, were demanding signs from heaven. Now it's important to note in this section that Jesus has just finished his discourse on prayer. So prior to this, what Jesus has just taught his disciples is what we call the Lord's Prayer. And we can see that this exorcism is not just some random miracle, but rather it manifests to all the purpose of Jesus' signs and wonders. They were to demonstrate the power of the kingdom and how it is restoring Israel to be a kingdom of priests. He's creating a new Israel, a restored Israel that's gathered around him to properly worship and speak the praises of God because they had been held captive by the power of the evil one. And in this, he's revealing Israel's true great enemy, that it wasn't Rome, as so many thought, but Satan and his demons. And it reveals that our warfare is primarily through worship, through prayer, through singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, because our ultimate enemy is not flesh and blood. And now this miracle was undeniable. The people marveled. However, this doesn't mean they all believed or understood what Jesus was doing. We know this because some said it was done by the power of Beelzebul, while others just wanted more signs. Instead of recognizing Jesus as the promised Messiah, excuses were made. And now this is a reminder that simply seeing the power of God manifested is not enough. I'm sure you've heard the following before from somebody if God just did a miracle then I would believe now this helps put to bed that lie people can see the mighty works of God and still not believe they will make excuses and suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness now Jesus's response was to address the claim that he cast out demons by Beelzebub who he calls Satan by demonstrating that the kingdom can have no unholy alliances, no neutrality, and no alternatives. So we're going to go through the next three sections. In verses 17 through 20, Jesus first addresses the claim that he cast out demons by Beelzebul. And so this was the Luke's gospel. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is divided against himself, 
how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now notice Jesus equates Beelzebub with Satan. Beelzebub is not a common name for the devil. It's used only in the recording of this event in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and one other time by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, it refers back to 2 Kings chapter 1, where the name is used twice for the god of Ekron, that the king of Samaria seeks out for a healing instead of going to Yahweh, going to the Lord. There's much debate about the meaning of the name, with most scholars stating it's one of these options. It means Lord of the Flies or Prince Baal, kind of the kingly title, or Lord of the Abode. All three of these possibilities make sense with our text, so it could be that the name has many connotations. First, Jesus says he doesn't do this by Beelzebul, but by the finger of God, which is an allusion to Exodus 8, our Old Testament reading this morning, and the battle between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh and his magicians. And Yahweh stirs up gnats and flies, and the magicians were unable to replicate it because it was done by the finger of God. And so now Yahweh is the true Lord of the flies or gnats, not Beelzebub or Satan. Or it could be that Satan is the prince of this world, and that's what Jesus is getting at, and the chief of demons. So that's why this name is used. Or lastly, he's the one in the house. That's what it means, prince of the abode, the house. And hence why Jesus uses the imagery of a household and a kingdom in his response. And in the next illustration about a strong man. So Beelzebub has the idea of the one who is in control of a house. It's also important to remember that Jesus was often called a Samaritan. So it makes sense that these scoffers would say he was in league with this false god that an unfaithful king of Samaria sought help from. And we also see that Jesus confirms that they understand a mighty work has been done. It is undeniable, as I said earlier. So he throws this fact back on them. So if I do this by Beelzebub, he's saying, then who do your sons cast out demons? This seems to indicate there were exorcists in Israel, and this is confirmed by Acts 19, verse 13, that references the multiple itinerant Jewish exorcists. So these exorcists would be witnesses against them, those who are in the uh, crowd, because they would testify that only Yahweh could be able to act this way. Only the finger of God could do such a thing, thus demonstrating that in Jesus, with his unique authority, the kingdom of God has come, thus judging those there who are trying to diminish Jesus. Now, Jesus lets them know he has made none, uh, no unholy alliances and has no divided loyalties. He has a single mission, and that's the kingdom of God. He can't be doing the will of his Father in heaven while he is in alliance with Satan. And so he uses that illustration of a kingdom and a household to bring that home. Internal conflict within a kingdom does not produce health, but rather division, hostility, and strife. 
It destroys a kingdom. And so the same for a household. It will fall when it's against itself. When mother and father, father and children, mother and children are against one another, this infighting does not produce a strong front and foundation against outside enemies because there is no unity and thus it leads to destruction. And this illustration here is a call for us as the church to not allow, foster, or promote unnecessary divisions. We're called to unity, and in this we have great power in our fight against the evil one and in our witness to the world. And additionally, we see that we are not to use Satan's tools to advance the kingdom of God. The church cannot make an alliance with the devil in our mission. Are we to sin that grace may abound? God forbid, may it never be so. Now, this will require wisdom, especially when our acts of love and mercy are seen in our culture as hateful, bigoted, or primitive. But it must be recognized that it can be a great temptation to join with the world to avoid trials or discomfort. We've seen this in the past with the church cozying up to the state and compromising her mission and message. We also see it today, for example, with some churches embracing the woke agenda, which turns biblical justice on its head. They're making unholy alliances with Satan to try to advance what they believe is the kingdom of God. In verses 21 through 23, we read, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, Jesus teaches that there is no neutrality. You're either on his side or you aren't. It's that simple. You're either with him or you're not. There's no getting around it. He is the one that has bested the strong man, which is Satan. Jesus is most likely alluding to Isaiah chapter 49, verses 24 to 26, about the servant of the Lord spoiling the mighty one and bringing back all of the captives. And thus Jesus is stating he's that promised servant of the Lord. If you aren't with him, then you're not on the Lord's side and you're opposed to him. You can't be on the fence. He's defeated Satan in the wilderness by resisting his temptations. He has seen Satan fall like lightning, as he says in Luke 10. He's casting out demons in his own authority by the finger of God, and it requires a response. There's no middle ground. You must make a decision about Jesus. It's surprising to see that Jesus does not battle with Rome, but with the greater enemy than Rome the devil and his minions. Now, Rome has occupied Israel and is everywhere around. Yet Jesus is concerned with the demons that have been making their home in Israel and the synagogues and in the people. So this is a holy war. You're either on Jesus' side or you're not. And he's restoring a people to fight in this war by loosing their tongues to praise and pray and call out to God their father. And this is the same for us, those who are with Jesus, those who gather around him on the Lord's day. We must understand who our true enemy is. And if we miss this, 
we will get the rest wrong. This is why we say that worship is warfare. And now we need to take courage in Jesus' spoiling of Satan. Since it's because of this, we can be victorious in our own fight against Satan and his devices. It is because of this we can battle against the principalities and powers. We can follow in Jesus' train because we are united to him. His victory is our victory. The spirit of Jesus is the same Holy Spirit that has been poured into us. The declaration at our baptism is the same one. Uh, the declaration at his baptism is the same one we receive. We are sons of God in the Son of God. And now gather with Jesus and fight the devil because he is a defeated foe. We have the victory. And what Jesus says is quite confusing next when we get to this section in verses 24 to 26. And he says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now, this isn't a statement about all exorcisms, or then it would be pointless to do them if a person who has a demon cast out will end up worse because of it. So Jesus must be talking about something else. Now, Jesus demonstrates that there are no alternatives to his ministry in his parable. So that's what is getting, uh, that's the point he is getting at. Now, this teaching of Jesus is cryptic. It seems the best way to take this is that the person Jesus is referencing is Israel, is the state of Israel. And the house is primarily the house that represents Israel, the temple. So Jesus's ministry and exorcisms are unique because he has been given authority and he is bringing in the promised kingdom. He is ushering in a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth, and a new humanity. Israel has had other renewal leaders that have tried to cleanse Israel. And so whether this is a reference to the return from exile, the Maccabean revolt and the Maccabees, or even the various, uh, various purity sects in Israel that were happening at that time, like the Pharisees. I don't think we're meant to choose what Jesus is uh, referencing. Rather, it's all of these. So none of these actions, none of these groups are what's going to bring in the promises of a renewed and faithful Israel. It will only be through the work and ministry of Jesus, the anointed one, the one who has the spirit in full measure, that will bring that in. And so now you can either enter the kingdom and experience deliverance from Satan and the kingdom of darkness, or you can be worse off in rejecting the promised Messiah and the new covenant. And this seems to be why Peter says that those who have left the faith in 2 Peter 2 are in a worse state. He's applying Jesus' teaching here. They have returned to Judaism back into Israel by rejecting Jesus and the new covenant and the promises. And now they're only in a worse state than they were before. And now the temple is a symbol of the body and thus for the individual. So Jesus is addressing this historic reality in Israel and its acceptance or rejection of him. But it also applies to us as well. 
As Christians, we're baptized and we are now sons of God. And in our epistle lesson this morning, this is what Paul is referencing. We have been baptized into the kingdom of light. We are now to be imitators of God by walking rightly. We're to walk in love as Christ walked when he gave himself up for others. So we avoid being filled with seven stronger evil spirits by not simply putting off the kingdom of darkness and the activities associated with them, but we also must put on something. We're not just uh, renouncing things. We're also putting on love. We must walk like Jesus. We must give ourselves in love and service to others. As Paul says elsewhere, love does no wrong to a neighbor. And so we avoid becoming this whitewashed tomb, a den of demons, in a worse state than at first, not by simple asceticism, but rather by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, by walking in union with our Savior in the power of the Spirit, living as he lived sacrificially for the sake of his sheep, the church, and for the sake of the world. It is in this that we share in the kingdom of light. So let us walk in the strength that Jesus provides, knowing it's only through our union with him, through gathering around him, we can be victorious in the temptations and snares of the devil. And now lastly, we read the following in verses 27 and 28. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, a few things to notice. First, we see come to fulfillment what Mary sang, All generations shall call me blessed, in the Magnificat in Luke 1, 48. Now, this is a common way of expressing the greatness of the one born of the woman and usually referenced a mighty man or victorious war, uh, warrior, which would fit our context with Jesus casting out a demon and demonstrating his greatness over the powers of darkness. And so it's fitting this woman would say this. And second, Luke uses a rare Greek participle in Jesus' response with the word rather. So instead of the word rather, it's best to understand it as yes, but. Thus, Jesus acknowledged the blessedness of his mother, but he's particularizing it. It was not simply because she was his mother that she was blessed. Mary's blessedness was through her obedience to the word of God. And this is indicative of all those who listen to Christ. It wasn't enough to be an Israelite. It wasn't enough to be a son of Abraham. This wasn't going to get you a seat at the table in the kingdom at that great feast on the last day. It would only be through obedience to the word of God, and in particular, the word of God made flesh, who was calling people to gather to him, hear him, follow him, and obey him. And this is the same promise of blessing extended to you today, if you hear his word and keep it. And so, dear Christians, let us this day have a singular mission of devotion to our Lord Jesus. And let's gather with him, knowing he's defeated our enemy, so we can be faithful soldiers in his army with undivided loyalty to hear his word and keep it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Now let's please stand for prayer. And let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the stronger man who plundered Satan's house by casting out demons with your finger and finishing him off by your death on the cross. Blessed are those who hear your word and keep it by their works of mercy and charity as Satan falls like lightning from heaven when he sees you in us. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.